My grandchildren. Oh, they bring me such incredible, incredible delight. I love them to bits. Even when they wake me up in the morning, very early, much too early, and come in bed and want to play tents under the duvet. I still love them. I love their small talk. I love their smiles. I love their innocence. Elijah, who's two, came, home, came into our house the other day and he was looking for Julie. He said, where's Mam Gee, which is grandmother in Welsh. Where's Mam Gee? And she obviously wasn't in the house. I said, well, Mam Gee's up to the top of the garden and she's actually on top of the pear tree. He came back five minutes saying, oh, no, she isn't. You know, that innocence. And then Amelie, age four, kept saying, Grandad, me. <laughs> Grandad is my superhero. I must say I got a certain amount of pleasure from that concept, and I didn't want to be too boastful about it, but I did tend to drop my comments into a number of conversations that week. And I imagined that perhaps when she spoke of me as a superhero, she was talking of yeah. Superman. In fact, when I was a lot younger, some people said I looked a little bit like uh, Clark Kent. Or perhaps not Superman, maybe it was uh, Spider-Man or Batman. Actually, I overheard Amelie having a, a conversation. Actually, it was a little bit more than a conversation. It was a bit of an argument with another child. And she was saying to this other child, my granddad is a real superhero. And the other child took some convincing that this was true, but then Amelie went a stage f further and informed her of the name of this superhero that her granddad was. To tell you the truth, it wasn't one that I'd heard of. But I'm not much into comic books, and uh, I don't know about these things, and, uh, you know, all I thought was a superhero is a superhero is a superhero. It doesn't really matter. She sees me as a superhero. <sighs> that was quite wonderful. And then I happened to mention it to Dan. <laughs> I didn't really want to rub it in too much. But his daughter thought that I was a superhero. But when I spoke about this, Dan and Sean chuckled rather unkindly, as I remember it, and then proceeded to show me of the picture of the superhero that Emily thought that I was. Baymax. <laughs> And as you can see there, Baymax is a cross between Mr. Blobby and the Michelin Man. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I felt a little bit deflated by that, but I'm sure that Amelie meant, very, meant well, and we have laughed about it since. And sometimes when I think of the kids, I feel that my heart is just going to burst because I love them so much. I'm utterly besotted. And those of us who have decided to follow Jesus often speak of what God means to us, how wonderful he is, how loving, how gracious, how kind, how compassionate, how magnificent, how trustworthy, how faithful, and how his love has changed our lives. And of course, all of that is true. God is all of those things, and he's even more than that, far more than that. But sometimes we miss what the Bible teaches in that the opposite of that is also true. 
Not only does God bring great pleasure to us, but we bring pleasure to him. Wow. What an amazing thought that fallen human beings like us, full of our failures and failings, full of our prejudice and pride, full of our sinfulness and snotty noses, that he loves us, that he finds great pleasure in us. I find that absolutely incredible. And the way that my grandkids bring me great joy, that we, with all of our faults and failings, bring great joy and pleasure to our God. Wow. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, You created everything, and it is for you a pleasure that they exist and were created. That's incredible, isn't it? The reason that we have breath in our lungs is due to the fact that God is wanting to gain pleasure from me and from you. Many of you know of the American pastor and author Rick Warren. He once wrote that you were planned for God's pleasure. The moment you were born into the world, God was there as an unseen witness, smiling at your birth. He wanted you alive, and your arrival gave him great pleasure. God did not need to create you, but he chose to create you for his own enjoyment. You exist for his benefit, his glory, his purposes and his delight. Bringing enjoyment to God, living for his pleasure is the first purpose in your life. And if any of you this morning are struggling with a little bit of issue of, in, in terms of self-image or identity, or somehow don't think very highly of yourself or that you are not very important to anyone, then I would say to you, think again, that you are a child of God, created to bring him pleasure like nothing else that he has ever created. And our bringing God pleasure is called worship. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in 1647, says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Wow. The chief end of man. The reason that we are here, the reason that we exist, is to glorify God. That is to declare his love and his majesty and his power through our lips and through our lives. So that human beings and governments and principalities and powers might grasp how awesome he really is. And that we might enjoy him forever. Now that might sound strange to one or two of you here this morning. How on earth can you enjoy God? But for those who are Christians, for those who have walked a journey with God over many years, you will know exactly what that means. Because God is a God who chooses not to be unknowable. A God who is distant and far off, but a God who is knowable. A God who loves to journey with us through our lives. There's a very old quote, and I'm sure you've come across it before, by a 17th century philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, who said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God 
the Creator, made known through Jesus. You see, substitution too. Other things that we try to fill in our lives don't fit because that space is for God and for Him alone. It was the great Saint Augustine, 1200 years before Blaise Pascal. He said, a great Christian of the 5th century, he said in a prayer that, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Some of you might be able to relate to that this morning, that there is a restlessness that you know, that you know that your life is more than you are presently experiencing. You know in your heart of hearts that you have not experienced everything there is to experience. You know that there is something more. And the reason for that is that God has created you that way. He has shaped you that way. And you have not yet experienced the wonder of God filling your life. Many people today are looking for some purpose in their lives. They're not really sure where to find it. What's life all about? Is there any meaning to life? Is there any great scheme or significance to the whole thing? And it was Pete Meadows and uh, Joseph Steinberg in their book Beyond Belief. They wrote these words. They said, can it really be in the great scheme of things that each of us is no more significant than a boil on the backside of a baboon? (laughs) When all is said and done, is this all that there is? When our clogs have been popped and our buckets kicked and our daisies well and truly pushed up, have we done no more than make an infinitesimal contribution to the human gene pool? And have we been of no more consequence than was what once a hedgehog, but is now a faint blur in the middle of the road? Freddie Mercury from Queen's The Show Must Go On conveys a similar sentiment when he says, does anybody know what we are living for? But these questions, questions that you may be asking this morning, are not new to our generation. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon asked many of the same questions. And they are included in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Coming towards the end of this life, this great king, he looks back upon his life and he desires to give insights and understanding a little bit of his wisdom to future generations. And he explains that everything that he had in his life, tried and tested and and tasted, had been meaningless, pointless, hollow, empty. Everything is meaningless, that is, without God. And Solomon, throughout those 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, says that if we try to find meaning in our accomplishments, or in our possessions, or in our achievements, or in our wealth, we will never, ever experience satisfaction in our lives. To quote Rick Warren again, he writes in his book, Purpose Driven Life, the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, even your own happiness. is far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams on ambition. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. For you were born by his purpose, 
and for his purpose. And some of you might say this morning, well, yeah, that's what you would expect a Christian pastor to say, those kind of things. But Rick wasn't the only person who recognizes these things. Very interesting to know that one very famous atheist, world-renowned in another generation, a man by the name of (coughs) Bertrand Russell, he was honest enough to admit that unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. And when you think of it, he was absolutely correct. Because if there is no God, if there is no God, there's no point to anything. There's no point to anything. That our lives, we are but helpless pawns at the hands of fate. There'd be no reason or meaning behind anything we do. And death would mean the end of a meaningless existence. Many people don't know this, but Bertrand Russell was actually brought up in a Christian home. And he was brought up to believe in God. And he rejected his upbringing and became an outspoken atheist. And after his death, his daughter Catherine said of him, Somewhere at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled with God. And he never found anything else to put in it. I find those incredibly sad words. And those are words which I've encountered. And I have, it's, it's a story that I've seen of many people over many years. But you see, it doesn't need to be like that. Because our amazing God has given mere human beings like us the opportunity to rise above the drab mediocrity of life. And he has invited us to live in a relationship with him and to be involved in a mission which is so exciting and so wonderful, more wonderful than anything else that we could ever experience in the world. And he invites us, all of us, to live lives of real experience and purpose on a higher plane than often the bland, banal, insipid issues that would otherwise govern our lives. Forgive me, I know I've told you this story before and I'm going to tell you again. It just seemed to fit this morning in what I'm saying. But when I was a a little one, I was um, very much into doing jigsaws. And uh, the more complicated, the better. On one occasion, my auntie bought me a jigsaw. And it was a 500-piece jigsaw. And I think I was a preschooler, so it was quite quite a, a task. And as you do with the jigsaws, you find the corner pieces, then you find the straight edges. But I was up days trying to do this. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't work it out. And then I realized that the jigsaw pieces within the box were not related in any way, shape, or form to the picture on the books. (laughs) And as I think I've said to you before, I wasn't sure whether, you know, that was an accident. She just put it in the wrong box or she was a sadist. I'm not really sure (laughs) which it was. (coughs) But you see... That is so much like the way that many people live their lives. They try to make sense of what life is all about. And a little bit like me doing that jigsaw, they become frustrated and anxious and confused. And it's all because they're following the wrong picture. They're attempting to work out the jigsaw of their lives. A jigsaw which has been created by God and for God, with God left out of the picture. And that is absolutely impossible. 
You know, to know why we're on planet Earth, we need to start in the right place. And we need to begin with God. And being successful and fulfilling our life's purpose are not the same. You see, we can be successful in life. We can achieve all of our personal goals in life. We can become a great success in the eyes of the world. We can make sackloads of money. But we can still miss out on the real reason why God has created us. My message today, and you probably guessed this already, is very simple. Very, very simple. We have been called to be a people of purpose. Not just people who exist. And our purpose is found in God. Over the next five weeks, Dan and I together are going to explore this whole subject of finding our purpose in God. (coughs) And this short series is based very loosely on something that Rick Warren wrote in his his book, um, Purpose Driven Church. And this is what he says. He says that the purpose of Christ's church in the world is to bring people to Jesus and membership in his family, to develop them into Christ-like maturity, equip them for ministry in his church and life mission in the world in order to magnify God's name. I think that's a great sentence, I really do. That really does draw a huge amount of biblical teaching and it embraces our purpose as Christians in God's world. As you note there from that statement, there are five words all beginning with the letter M which speak of God's purposes for our lives. That we are to magnify, which speaks of worship. And I'm going to say a few more words about that in a few minutes' time. And I'm going to come back to that. That's uh, really where I'm, I'm heading this morning. But also there's membership. You see, we have been called into community. We have been called into fellowship. God has not only called us to himself, but he has also called us to one another. And the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation or detachment from other people. That we are to live together as, uh, to experience part, um, to, to experience his purposes in our lives. And they can only really be worked out through shared lives. Maturity or discipleship. That God, thank you. Thank you very much. Maturity or discipleship. You see, God's desire for us, his children, is not that we remain babes in Christ, but that we become mature, that we become fruitful in our lives. And a mature believer is not necessarily one who has a lot of knowledge. You can have a lot of knowledge and still not be mature. What is maturity then? It is becoming more like Jesus Christ. And that is his desire for each one of us. Mission or outreach. You see, mission isn't just an activity for the extrovert or for those who are gifted evangelists or for those who are mature believers. But it's both a responsibility and a privilege for all believers. God is ascending God. Mission is God's idea. God sent his son. The word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. God is ascending God. 
And he sent his son and he is sending us into his world. And ministry, service, that God has called us to himself in order that we can serve his purposes in this world. So that we should be salt and light in the darkness around us. And we do that as becoming a servant. Coming back to worship, worship is the chief purpose of our lives. And the heart of worship, there's so much misunderstanding. It really, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding when it comes to worship. The heart of worship is not about songs. It's not about music. It's not about musical instruments. It's not about church buildings. It's not about ritual. But it's about God himself. It's about a whole life response to God's love. It's about us bringing God pleasure and if that's the driving force of our lives it will affect everything else three misconceptions about worship misconception one it's all about music I'll speak to many people and they will assume that worship and music are synonyms they're not and people say such things like this in our church We have worship first, then we do something with the kids, then the kids go out, and then we have teaching. That is a huge misunderstanding. Because every single part of our time together is worship. When we are praying, when we are reading, when we are singing, confession, the silence, listening to the sermon. I'm not sure whether sleeping through the sermon constitutes worship as well. It might do, I don't know. Communion, greeting others, giving financially and sacrificially to the Lord's work. Worse still, I've heard some Christians refer to a particular style of song as being worship. And I've heard things in the past being said something like this. Well, we started by singing a hymn together. And then we had some worship songs. Now think about it. What on earth was the hymn? You know, we weren't singing it to Buddha. Or sometimes we say something like this. I like the faster praise songs, but it's the worship songs that really touch my heart. Worship's got nothing at all to do with styles of songs or speed of songs or volume of songs. God loves all music that's directed to him from hearts filled with his love. He invented it all. Country and western, jazz, rap, garage, happy clappy. Even the traditional hymns. Did you know that, uh, you know, Wesley, when he wrote those great hymns of yesteryear, that he took some of the tunes that were sung in the pubs and put them to Christian lyrics? You know, Christians sometimes disagree over music used in worship. Often they defend their preferred style as the most biblical or the most God-honoring. Sorry I burst your bubble this morning, but there's no such thing as a biblical style. 
frankly, what it says is more about you. It says more about your likes and your preferences. But there's no biblical style. There are Christian lyrics, but there's no Christian music. You know, Julie and I just loved being in Malawi a couple of months ago, and um, there were no instruments at all there. Well, unless you can call a tin can with a few stones in it an instrument. But boy, was it awesome. Absolutely awesome just to be there. And they could teach us a thing or two of coming before God to celebrate his goodness and his love. And I just love singing God's praises. I really do. And I am so grateful for talented lyricists who have put together great words that I can use because very often I'm lost for words and they can help me relate to God and great music and we've got such a great um, music band here great musicians who inspire us with their playing but you see worship is far more than music yes it can include music if we have the right heart and we do it with the right motives but worship is far more than that Second misconception is that somehow worship is for our benefit. I wish I had five pound for every time I heard someone say, Worship was good this morning. Oh, I loved worship today. I got a lot out of it. Well, I didn't get much out of worship today. I tell you what, if I had had a five pound note for every time I'd heard any of those statements, I probably would have a yacht in the Bahamas now. The clue here is in the word Worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word which speaks of worship. And we worship someone or something when we are declaring how valuable it is, he is, she is, they are to us. Therefore, worship is not focused on us. It is always, always focused on God. It's not about us. It's not about our likes and our preferences. It's about us bringing adoration and praise and thanksgiving from hearts which have been touched by his love. You see, just to sing a song, even though you may be singing it with eyes closed and hands raised, does not necessarily constitute worship. It might, but it might not. Because in Isaiah 29:13, God complains about the worship that is half-hearted and insincere. These people, he said, come near to me, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. <clears throat> so sometimes we can almost get to that place where we think that worship equals music, that the two are synonymous, they're not. Or that it is for our benefit. Well, the challenge for you this morning is not to go from this place saying, oh, that was, that was good, or that was not so good. But what did you bring? What did you bring to bring pleasure to God today? <coughs> the third misconception, it's all about Sundays. You know, we make so much about worship that occurs within a church, and we meet for less than two hours on a Sunday morning. And I know that Christians have fallen out over expressions and styles of worship. And churches have been split because of that. But you see, worship is about 
the other 166 hours in a week, not just the two hours that we might spend in church on a Sunday. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. So whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. I love that. Eat and drink. Eating and drinking are very normal, everyday, ordinary things to do. It's something that we all do. And what we're being told here is that we can worship God through the ordinary, through the mundane, through the everyday things of life. Basically, everything that we do needs to be done with God in the picture and with the aim of bringing Him pleasure. Wow. Doesn't that transform the way that we think of worship. I know that a number of you work here for Food Bank. And you work hard, you know. Jim, you work so hard there in the storage and you come many days a week just doing all of that. But feeding the hungry, because we are Christians, because we have a desire to make a difference, and with God in the picture, that's worship. That's worship. Don't think of it as anything else. Bringing friendship to those isolated through age, as Prime Time does, and many of you work for Prime Time. And you do it with the right heart. And you want to make a difference in their lives. That's worship, which is acceptable to God. Introducing children and young people to Jesus through Kids Club. And the various youth activities is worship. Doing your job at work with commitment and with excellence. Not shirking responsibility. Because you are a Christian. That is worship. You know, some people have this strange idea. You know, there's the spiritual side of our lives. You know, the things, the times that we meet in church on a Sunday. The times we may pray on our own. Perhaps when we go to life group in the week. And then there's the other side, the secular. There is no such thing as a secular part of our lives, if we're a Christian, because everything is worship. Choosing not to gossip when others are. Have you ever thought of that? And you are doing that, because you have made a stand in that place of work that you are a Christian. And you are saying by that very action or by not gossiping, you are saying, God, you're worth it. You're worth it. That also is an act of worship. Befriending that awkward staff member when others ostracize him. Again, because you're a Christian. It's worship. Choosing to support a baby in Malawi. is worship. Giving to the purposes of God through what the local church does here. And we do thank you for your giving. It's an act of worship. I once heard of uh, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, you know, the evangelist. That she had a sign put up in her kitchen which said, Divine worship offered here three times a day. I like that. Every activity can be transformed into an act of worship. When you do it for the praise, the honour and the pleasure of God. And work becomes worship when you dedicate that to God. 
and you perform it with an awareness of his presence. So much more I could say. Time has gone. Let me just finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, in life there are first things, God, and second things, (laughs) everything else. And if you put first things first, you will also get the second things. And if you put the second things first, you will not only lose the first things, but you will lose the second things too. Wasn't that what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice and all these other things will be added to you as well. You see, the revolutionary and liberating truth is this, that when we seek God's approval and presence, we will also receive all that we need for life and for happiness. We are speaking about God's purpose, our purpose in life. Maybe some of you today are wondering what on earth that purpose is. You need to start looking in the right place. You really do. And I've got to finish with John Wimber's words. Live your lives before an audience of one. <laughs>